Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 to 29. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark 9, verses 2 to 29. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them, any more but only Jesus, nine. And they, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then it is written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he forms and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Verse 19, he answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, 
How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you're able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you're able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We had an amazing all-church retreat on Friday evening and then half day on Saturday. And Dr. Andrew Root provided an amazing framework for us to think about the work of the church and our calling to be disciples in this very complex time, times in which we find ourselves. Dr. Root comes to us as the professor of uh, youth and, uh, and, and ministry from the Luther Seminary in, in Minneapolis, and he's been a real blessing to us. And I want to pray with him before he presents the word to us today. Our Father, I do thank you for our brother Andrew and for his devotion to you and to the scriptures, his devotion to study and thinking about the work of your church in these times. Pour out your spirit upon him again as you did on Friday night and on Saturday. Use him for your glory. May our hearts be opened to receive your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and it's been a pleasure to be here this weekend. With the retreat, we did really explore what is the future of the church, and particularly what does that mean for faith formation and discipleship. Now, there were two things that we asked the group that was together to turn away from when it comes to trying to solve these issues that we confront coming out of COVID as just a more secular uh, society comes in. And the first thing we said we should turn away from when we think about the future of the church is not to think that the church's issues could be solved by technology, to not take a certain technological framework. Now, I have to be really careful when I say that, and I have to let you all know that I actually love technology. Um, I'm wearing an Apple Watch right now, so those of us who have Apple Watches are better than those of you who don't have Apple Watches. Like, I like, love technology. I have a lot of young seminary students where if you give them a kind of interesting or deconstructive sense of the biblical text, they think you're cool. If you insult Twitter, they get really, really mad at you. So let me just say, I like technology. I like it a lot. But there is a way that technology kind of frames our imagination. And we do have to be honest that technology can do amazing things. 
Like, I'm sure you remember one of the classic movies of all time, um, Apollo 13. Do you remember Apollo 13 from about 15 or so years ago? This is a kind of bio, historical biopic starring Tom Hanks about the Apollo 13 moon mission. If you haven't seen this movie, if you go home and turn on TNT or TBS, it will probably be on in about 20 minutes. It seems to just continually play Tom Hanks movies on a loop. But if you haven't seen this movie, it's a fascinating movie that depicts this historical moment. And you remember that the very kind of epic point of the movie, of the tale they're telling, is that this crew gets to the moon and something goes wrong with the spacecraft. And then we get one of the most famous cinematic lines of all time. It's like top 10 cinematic lines. And you could say it with me, we get Houston, I think we have a problem. And of course the problem is this crew is not going to be able to land on the moon. Worse, they may not be able to get these men back in the Earth's atmosphere. True story. So the next scene in the movie is Ed Harris's character down in Houston and we get a scene in a kind of small boardroom and he has gathered his best technologists, his best engineers, and he comes into the room carrying a cardboard box. And he comes to the table and he dumps it out and he says, gentlemen, this is all they have up there. It's like the cover to the lunar manual. It's a screwdriver, an ace bandage, a roll of duct tape. And he's like, fix the aircraft with this and get them, get them home. And amazingly, they do it. They do it. Technology is an amazing thing. Technological solutions can do amazing things. But there is a way they also get embedded in our imagination and frame our imagination of how we encounter almost everything in the world. And what technology does is it tends to tell us that everything, there's, everything's a problem and there's some kind of functional solution to that problem. If you can just find the functional solution, it'll be okay. I think one of the problems as we think about the future of the church, one of the dangers, one of the traps we could fall into is we just think if we could find the right technology in our church. Well, it seems like people are more interested in going to coffee shops than going to church on Sunday morning. So what if we had a coffee shop in our church? Or what if we just had a better, more interesting kind of VBS program? Maybe that would bring them in. There has to be some kind of techno technical solution. What if we just had better projectors in the, the sanctuary? What if we really had a celebrity endorsement to come to church? We keep on thinking there must be some technical solution to solve it. I think we explored this weekend that that is a dead end, that there's no technology that can solve this issue. But the second thing we tried to turn away from this weekend, and we do not think will help in faith formation, that faith formation just can't be a technical solution. But one of the other things that we tried to turn away from, which is not as quite as obvious, is we're not sure that just pure theology will solve the problem. In other words, we could think, well, our church is in decline, our younger families and young people aren't that interested in going to church, if they just knew the right stuff. If we could just get the information in their head, then everything would be okay. I mean, if we could just get seven and eight-year-olds to read Calvin's Institutes, then everything would be fine. Now, one of my first experiences ever in ministry, I was a freshman in college in my home church, which had a pretty big confirmation program, and they had small groups for the ninth graders, asked me if I would lead one of the small groups of ninth graders as a freshman in college. 
I was very honored to do this. And they said, well, we're going to kick off this whole confirmation season with a retreat for the ninth graders. Would you come on the retreat? And I said, I would love to, but unfortunately I have a class when the van is leaving for this retreat. They said, that's okay. You can go up with Ryan. Now, I was a freshman in college, but Ryan was a first-year seminary student. And so Ryan was also leading a small group, so we drove up to this camp for this ninth grade confirmation retreat. And on the way up, Ryan gave me a little speech. And he said, listen, you know, confirmation is good, but if the church is going to have any future, these kids really need to know this stuff. And he's like, we have to be done with fun and games and confirmation. We need to get them to know the information. They need theology. They definitely need to get theology. And at the time, I couldn't even spell theology, so that sounded good to me. So I was like, yeah, that sounds great. We got to the camp. We got out of his car. He looked at me intensely, and he says, tomorrow at 10 a.m., I'm giving the talk to all the ninth graders, and I'm going to give them theology. Well, 10 a.m. came, and boy, did he give them theology, I guess. It was about 20 minutes of everything he learned in his first semester of seminary. There were some parsed Hebrew verbs. There was a little bit of a conversation about the ancient Hebrew temple structure. Then there was a switch to the disputed Pauline epistles, and it went on and on. And I could watch these ninth graders. Every five minutes, they were pulled to the ground by the gravity and minutia of his theology till finally flustered Ryan concluded and they all stood up like they were a well-oiled children's choir and raced out the back door as if to leave the minutia of his theology behind. Theology is important. If I could only read in one more discipline my whole life, it would be theology. But when it comes to the future of the church, when it comes to thinking about faith formation in this secular age, it can't just be about getting more information in people's heads, having them know um, all the right answers. Rather, I think what we need, and what we explored this weekend, is that we need to take a theological turn. We need to be able to think theologically as a community. Okay, I get it. I, now I'm trying to parse the difference between theology and the theological, and you're thinking, it's too early in the morning for this. <laughs> so let me parse that for you by telling you a few stories, because I think there's a big difference. So I don't know if many of you know, I'm sure some of you know, the, the great um, German Lutheran pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, if you don't know, was involved in resistance um, during World War II and in the last days as a confessed pacifist pa pastor entered into a conspiracy as a double agent spy um, to kill Hitler, known as one of the great theologians of the 20th century. But what you might not know about Bonhoeffer is that uh, he was a child prodigy particularly intellectually. He started his doctoral dissertation at the University of Berlin at the age of 19. And he finished it at the age of 21. So you sit there now and think, my gosh, I've done nothing with my life. That's just kind of how you feel when you read Bonhoeffer's biography. But going so fast, there was a problem. He ran into a problem. He was in the ordination process, seeking to be ordained. But in that time, in Germany, in the synod that he was in, you needed to be 25 to be ordained. And he hadn't quite met all of his um, qualifications to even get a professorship. So he was kind of stuck in limbo. He had gone too fast. Well, his ordination committee had an idea for him. They said, well, maybe what would be really important for you, you are so young, 
Why don't you go to Barcelona and spend a year-long internship, be an intern in Barcelona? So Dietrich went and spent a year in Barcelona. Very interesting year. Well, one of the things we get from that time is a letter, a letter that he wrote to a man named Walter Dress, who happened to be a fellow student and a friend of Dietrich's. And、um, the letter isn't even discovered, which is very interesting. Bonhoeffer dies in、uh, 1945, and the letter isn't discovered until the late 1990s. When Walter Dress dies, and they're cleaning out his apartment and find this letter in a cache of other letters. Here's what the letter says. The first paragraph, Dietrich says to Walter Dress, he says, "Walter, did I talk to you about Emil Brunner's new book, The Divine Imperative?" Emil Brunner is a Swiss reform theologian. At this time, he's probably the second most important theologian on the continent, behind Karl Barth. He's very, very important, and he's just written a book on ethics. And Dietrich, since he was in high school, has been interested in ethics and was waiting for this book, anticipating it. And he says in the letter to Walter Dress, "Have you read it?" He says, "I have." Hashtag fail. Well, he doesn't really say that, but he says, "Oh my gosh, Walter, it is a disappointment." I mean, I was so anticipating this book, and Bruner has failed. He's failed at every turn. Bruner should be ashamed of himself. This book—it's—it's、uh, it, not any good. I mean, I had to finish 90 pages before it was done. I mean, Bruner, Bruner, Bruner—he should—he should be ashamed of himself for this book. Here it is. This young man with the. Dissertation just defended, and the ink on his diploma still wet, ripping apart one of the greatest theologians on the continent. When it comes to just theology, he just tears him apart. That's the first paragraph. But the whole letter changes in the second paragraph. Clearly, Dietrich thought of something, and he says to Walter Dress, "Did I tell you what happened to me?" He said, "The other day at 11 a.m., a 10-year-old boy came over to my flat to drop something off." Um, his parents are part of my congregation, and I asked to borrow something, and they sent their son to drop it off. Dietrich says the boy came in to my apartment, and I could tell immediately that he was down, that he was quite sullen and sad. He says, "I know this boy. This boy's in my Sunday school class. This boy is the personification of upbeat. You cannot get this boy to sit still, and yet here he is in my apartment, and he's very sullen and very down." So Dietrich tells Walter Dress that what he does is he just attunes himself to the humanity of the boy. He's just aware of the humanity of the boy, which is what we do as Christians in the world: are aware of one another. And Dietrich says that as he finally turns to the boy and says, "Is everything okay?" Well, the waterworks just come. The boy just starts sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And Dietrich picks the boy up. I mean, this is a different time in a different place. This is Barcelona in the 1920s. So Dietrich picks the boy up, puts him on his knee, and just holds him. Just holds the boy. That's it. There's no other objective. This is what it means to do ministry in the world. This is what the church is called to—to be with one another as Jesus Christ is with and for us. Dietrich is not thinking, "Hey." The boy's consciousness is weak now. It's time to get the Sunday school lesson in his head. It's time to make sure he's a member of the church forever. No, he just is with the boy. Well, Dietrich tells Walter Dress, in the midst of the boy sitting on his knees and the crying and the sobbing and all the gross elements that come with that, he says that he starts to be able to make out words. He can kind of decipher words in it, and he can hear, <laughs> Mister. Mr. Mr. 
Mr. Wolf, Mr. Wolf is dead. Mr. Wolf is dead. And Dietrich says to Walter Dress, and who is Mr. Wolf? Just so happens that Mr. Wolf is a three-year-old German shepherd dog who just hours earlier had died. And Dietrich just holds the boy. Just holds the boy and is with him. And again, that's the next step. That's what the church does in the world. That's how the church engages a secular world. That's how we think about faith formation, is we are with in the midst of these moments of confession. And Dietrich is just with this boy, and the boy starts to tell him how much he loved this dog. How the dog woke him up every morning. About how the dog was there to meet him on the trail when he come home, would come home from school. How he loved to play fetch with this dog. How much this dog meant to him. And this is what we do in faith formation. So we allow a space for us to, narr- to narrate the depth of our experience. But then something profound happens. Dietrich says that the boy wiped the tears from his eyes. After telling the story about how much he loved this dog, he wiped the tears from his eyes, he looked Dietrich in the eyes, and he said, Herr Bonhoeffer, you tell me now, will I see Mr. Wolf again in heaven? Will I see Mr. Wolf again? This is the theological. Out of the experience of ministering to our neighbor, out of the experience of a community, of sharing in each other's moments of loss, of giving space for us to narrate the depth of our experience, comes from that reality, big questions. Where is God now? Will you please pray for me? Will you please help me understand from the depth of the tradition what it means for me to be living this life now and how to make sense of it? That's an incredible ministry the church has. But it's not an easy one. Because Dietrich says when the boy asked him this question, he had no idea what to say. Will he see Mr. Wolf again in heaven? Dietrich says, I, I, he tells Walter Dress, I didn't know what I was supposed to say to this. He essentially says, the doctoral dissertation on dead dogs, I didn't take that class. <laughs> I had no idea what to say. And then in the letter, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says something incredibly profound. He says, I felt small next to the boy's question. I felt small. Now what's so profound about that? is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer rarely felt small. He even said this about himself. He said that I have to pray constantly about my own arrogance. I mean, when you start your PhD at 19, it's pretty easy to walk into a room and imagine you're the smartest person all the time in the room. When your father's the chair of psychiatry at the University of Berlin and they have dinner parties with some of the greatest minds of Germany while you're growing up and 10 years old talking to them, it's really hard to not feel like you are the smartest person in every conversation that you go to. And Dietrich said, I always had to pray about my own arrogance. Matter of fact, we see the arrogance in the first paragraph of the letter. When it just becomes about theoretical theology, he rips Elmo Brunner apart. But when a 10-year-old boy stumbles into his flat and asks the question about his dead dog, this arrogant young theologian feels small. Why does he feel small? Because he is on holy ground. God is moving here. God is showing up here. God is coming through the Spirit to minister life out of death. In the communion of shared ministry one to another, of hearing the big questions, God is moving. Jesus Christ is at work. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer feels small because he is on the holy ground. Well, he says that he had the answer. The boy wanted an answer. So Dietrich thought about it and he said, well, well, we know that God is love. 
And we know, oh, do we know how God loves you. And we know that God loves all animals too. And that you, yes, you, you loved Mr. Wolf. So yes, yes, I think you'll see Mr. Wolf again in heaven because I don't believe God loses anything that God loves. So at least for one great theologian of the 20th century, all dogs do go to heaven. So that's good for those of us who have a dog in our life that we love. But this moves us into our text today. And our text today, this Mark 9 text, is one of my favorites. Because I really feel like it should be like a premium cable miniseries. You know, like HBO should option this. It feels like it could, it's just, there's so much human pathos to it. Um, it's fascinating. Now, we don't have a ton of backstory with this, with this uh, text that we have, but we can imagine it. And if you were writing the screenplay for HBO, you'd have to fill in some of the backstory. But we have this father. And things are not going well for this father. He has this boy that he deeply loves, and things have gone quite bleak for this boy. And again, if you were writing the screenplay, you'd have to fill this in. But you can get the sense of this from the text, that maybe, that maybe it's just come, come down. The teachers at the school have said this boy is not allowed in any of their classes. The misbehavior, the fits are too much. And maybe things have gotten bleak at home. Maybe just last week he had an episode and he hit his sister. And now violence is starting to come into the home and mom and dad don't know what to do about this. Maybe it's even driving a wedge between them. They haven't talked much in the last week, week and a half because their grief is so heavy as their son, it seems to be sucked into the darkness. They don't know what to do. And they have been. They've been to every specialist to try to help their boy and none of them work. Well, they do get word up against their utter devastation that there's a healer in the Galilee and he's out of, outside their healthcare network, but they're willing to pay outside their health work, healthcare network. So they go. And maybe, we don't know this from the text, but maybe the father takes the boy and maybe he walks for days. Maybe two days. Maybe three. And every step, he's trying to find the hope again. He says every step, this time it's going to work. Yes, this person's outside our healthcare network. Yes, this healer is off in the Galilee. But yes, this time it's going to work. This is our last best chance, and this time it's going to work. Every step, he builds up his hope. He, out of the, the rubble of his fear and his anxiety and his broken dreams, he thinks this time it's going to work. This one is going to have the answers. Well, of course, he gets to where the disciples are, where Jesus is supposed to be. And he says, I'm here to see Jesus. I don't have an appointment, but I'm here to see Jesus. And the disciples say, oh, gosh, we're sorry. Um, Jesus isn't here right now. Jesus is actually on vacation. And he is. He's on vacation. He's taking his three best buddies, Peter, James, and John. They've loaded up coolers. They have some hot dogs and some s'mores. And they're going up on a mountain bromance getaway. All right, go with me here. And they go up. And they have a great time. The four of them hanging out, and they're, they're really enjoying themselves and eating a bunch of s'mores, but then things start getting really weird. And a fog descends on the mountains, and Jesus starts talking to dead people. It becomes like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And there's Elijah, and there's Moses. And if you read the Mark in text, that in the midst of this, and think about this, Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses, and Peter interrupts the scene. You know Peter, right? Like Peter is the disciple with a mouth that's shaped like a foot. Um, 
and Peter interrupts the scene and says, excuse me, excuse me, Jesus, Elias, and Moses. Nice to see you guys. It's, it's great. I'm really enjoying watching this happen. And I'm just wondering, I mean, is this going to be an all-nighter? Do you think this is going to be an all-nighter? Because I'm thinking that my, I, I would be willing to build three shelters, one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. What do you think? And the Mark and text actually says this. It says, he did not know what he was saying. Now, I am not a Greek expert, but I'm pretty sure what that means is really dumb thing to say really bad timing. Well, then a voice comes from heaven, and it says, this is my son, listen to him, and bam, it's over. And John and James are holding their s'more sticks like, whoa, this was incredibly trippy. Well, back down below, the father is told that Jesus is on vacation, and what's he to do? Well, he says, well, you've been with this Jesus. Heal my boy. And we get one of the most tragic incidents of the whole New Testament. He tries. They try, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you know there's almost nothing more painful in life than to feel like you are being strangled by impossibility, and yet you work yourself up to hope one more time, to just hope this time it's going to happen. This time the scan's going to show that the cancer is receding. This time, this time the job interview is going to work. This application I'm going to get into the program. This time the baby is going to be there. This time. And then to find that having worked yourself up, that this time it will work, to find that crash against the rocks of impossibility is deeply, deeply painful. And that's where this father is. Last best hope, shattered, gone. The darkness has his boy, and he is not coming back. And just then, Jesus walks into the scene. And Jesus has some harsh words to say to the disciples and those around there. But then he does something profound, incredibly profound, and something we miss that he turns to the Father and he says these words. He says, How long? How long has your boy been like this? And we miss it because we live in a diagnostic culture. So we think this is a diagnostic question. Like when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, Well, how long has your elbow felt like that? Or how long have you had the rash on your ankle? Or you take your computer into IT and the first question they ask is, how long has it been since the operating system has booted up? We think it's a diagnostic question, but there doesn't seem to be many other uh, parallels of Jesus asking diagnostic questions in his healing miracles. I don't think this is a diagnostic question. I think this is the question that invites the Father to one more time narrate his experience. Maybe even for the first time to narrate his experience. How long has your boy been like this? Long enough for it to be strangling me. Long enough for me to know if I leave here and he is not better, I don't know if I can go on. Long enough for it to be putting a wedge between me and my wife. Long enough. Long enough for it to be breaking my heart. In narrating that experience, the father finds just just an ounce of hope. It's just, it's resuscitated by just a little bit. And in the text, we hear him say, almost not even looking up, head still looking on the ground, almost protecting himself from any expectations. He says, but teacher, but teacher, if you are, if you are able, if you are able, and Jesus stops him and says, if I am able, if I am able, I was just up on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. If I am able, he 
he says, all things are possible for those who believe. Particularly those who believe and yearn for the presence of God up against their deepest how long. All things are possible for those who believe. And the Father echoes that by saying these, this great statement of New Testament faith. Great statement of what it means to have faith inside of this kind of secular age we're living in. The Father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. A church that engages this kind of world we're living in, that can do faith formation and discipleship in our world today, is one that asks each other as a community and then asks our neighbors in the world, how long? How long have you felt so alone? How long have you been afraid to walk the streets of this community? How long have you felt so lost? How long have you been so angry or so afraid? How long have you been so lonely? It's the how long where God moves. It's the how long where the Lordship of Jesus Christ comes and brings life out of our experiences of loss and death. The church will have a sure future when it follows Jesus and asks how long and seeks for the presence of Jesus Christ in our own experiences of how long. Amen.